we've been talking about the last few weeks as we prepare for Easter, we've been talking about the difference the cross makes. And I wanted you to hear Lee's story today. God has worked in a powerful way through it. Very difficult circumstances, and it's reflective of God's power in our lives. Turn with me to John chapter 19, if you would. Today we're focusing in on the, on, the, on the character of Joseph of Arimathea. Let's read about Joseph. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a, a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. So back at the cross, the centurion was trying to gather himself after the events of the last hours, the crucifixion. The Galilean hanging on the cross, the one they said that was the Messiah, had just proclaimed, it is finished. And as if on command, he died. The earth shook and the midday darkness felt eerily supernatural. Out of the corner of his eye, the centurion noticed a well-dressed, official-looking man walking quickly towards the city gate after Jesus died. He had noticed this man earlier, but he was standing off to the side, and he was away from the crowd and away from the mourners. But his face appeared to be sympathetic, full of compassion for the Galilean hanging on the cross. Unfazed by this observation, the centurion returned to the final stages of work associated with the bloody work of crucifixion. It took an amazing amount of courage for that man, Joseph of Arimathea, to seek an appointment with Pilate that afternoon. He had determined to obtain the body of Jesus and bury him in his own tomb. When he went to Pilate, Pilate didn't believe that the, 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 the criminals were dead. It, just, it, was, it was not according to the program. It should have lasted much longer. He didn't believe they were dead. So Joseph was forced to wait in Pilate's chambers until the, the guards were sent to verify that the criminals had indeed died and come back. It was a tense time of waiting. This was a frightful an even embarrassing interview for him to be at, for him to be making his request in front of Pilate. As he did that, he was exposing himself as a sympathizer of Jesus. So here he was, a Sadducee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. He was the head of 
the well-known, a well-known Sadducean family. And the scripture tells us that he was a secret follower of Jesus. Why else would he ask for the body? In his capacity as a religious leader, he, he should have been at that very moment standing in line at the temple with all the other men holding a lamb and, and moving towards a, the sacrifice of the lamb in preparation for the Passover. That's where he should have been. So finally, Pilate received the news that the supposed king of the Jews had indeed died. So with a shrug of his shoulders, he gave permission to Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus. As Joseph made his way back to Golgotha and hurried, hurried along the narrow streets of Jerusalem, he ran into his friend Nicodemus, a Pharisee. This was the same Pharisee that had secretly sought out the teaching of Jesus one night so long ago. Joseph explained that he had a private tomb and that he felt compelled to offer the tomb to Jesus. Nicodemus, he didn't even hesitate, not even for a moment when he said that he too felt strangely moved to be part of, of the, the burial of Jesus. He too had been part of the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. So he asked Joseph if he could come with him and if he could assist with the burial of the body. Let's not lose the irony of this. It was some kind of an irony that, the, that, that Jesus, the arrangements for his burial were made not by the disciples who had just, just previous to this pledged their undying loyalty to Jesus, to Jesus. But instead, his burial, burial was arranged by a Sadducee a Pharisee, and a pagan. So who is this man, Joseph of Arimathea? I don't know when the message of the kingdom began to sink into his heart. Somewhere along the line, this respected religious leader began to filter everything he knew through the teaching of this rabbi, this new rabbi named Jesus. Somewhere in the ministry of Jesus... This religious leader, while I imagine standing in the back, back row of the, of the crowd, standing towards the, to the rear of any crowd, and identifying with the sneering religious leaders, somehow he began to long for the kingdom of God that Jesus was describing, that he was so clearly teaching. No one knew about the shifting allegiance of Joseph. And now on this fateful day, the shift of allegiance became public. His Sanhedrin colleagues must have heard his request before Pilate. They must have seen him going into Pilate. They must have seen him asking for the body. They must have realized that he had done this. And certainly the, the, his colleagues from the Sanhedrin would have also been at the crucifixion because they wanted to make sure that he, that the, that the, the sentence was carried out and that Jesus indeed was dead. And so they were there when Nicodemus and Joseph approached the cross while they were ministering, probably ministering to the mother of Jesus and to the apostle John and the others who were standing at the cross. They were public. So who is this man? Joseph of Arimathea. How did he get to this day when he would come out of the shadows as a secret disciple? and boldly declare his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I don't believe his journey is, is unlike our own journey. You see, there comes a moment when we realize that following Jesus means identifying with Jesus. There comes a moment when, when we sell out everything we know for the sake of knowing him. So I'd like to explore his journey today because I believe it speaks to our journey as well. So let's look first of all at the profile of a secret believer. So Joseph's story is a small part of the, of the, of the I'll say, the Easter narrative, the cross and resurrection narrative. But this, this story of, the, of Joseph of Arimathea and the burial of Jesus is, is important. Well, how do we know that? Because it, first of all, it takes place in all four Gospels. So that makes us pay attention. Each writer wanted us to know about this religious leader coming to faith in Christ and going public with his testimony. So I don't have time to do this this morning, but let me summarize a little bit. If we, if we take all four accounts, all four gospel accounts, and we, and we compile them together and we learn, we learn about Joseph, here are some of the things that we learn. He was a Sadducee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. He was a wealthy man. He was a good and righteous man. He was well respected. The Gospels tell us that he longed for the kingdom of God. He had this, he had this longing in him that he just wanted to see God move. He wanted to see God's kingdom come down. We learn that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, that he hadn't proclaimed his testimony. And we learned that probably because of his debilitating fear of the Jews, he was a secret disciple. Gospels are very clear. He feared the Jews. And then we see that he had a friend in Nicodemus. I wish I could get inside that relationship and see if they were common secret disciples in the Sanhedrin or what. But, but somehow he had an acquaintance with Nicodemus, the one who came in the night to seek out Jesus. So what did it mean for Joseph to be a secret follower of Jesus? I'm going to make some assumptions. Scripture doesn't give us all the details, so I'm left with making some assumptions and some observations. What can we assume? First of all, I think we can assume that he was unwilling to declare his faith. He was unwilling to declare his faith. He wasn't willing to step out and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Another assumption I think we could make from what we know is that he was unwilling to risk his position, his status, his title. He was unwilling to risk his wealth. He was unwilling to risk his comfort. He was unwilling to risk it. Unwilling to risk the loss. And the other thing that I think he was unwilling to do was he was unwilling to set himself apart from the crowd. He was unwilling to set himself apart from the from his entourage, from the Sanhedrin. He wanted to keep his title as a, as a Sadducee and a respected leader in the Sanhedrin. He was unwilling, unwilling to set himself apart and to distance himself from that. The pattern of being a secret disciple seems to hinge on the word unwilling. Something stands in the way of our being willing to identify ourselves as Christ's followers. So when you look at the life of Joseph, it seems clear 
that this unwillingness comes from fear. Fear of losing all that he had worked for. Fear of losing his position. Fear of losing his title, his reputation, and even his wealth. Fear of opposition. Fear of loss is greater than our faith, greater than our commitment to Christ. That's when we're unwilling to make that step. So I ask myself, where does fear come from? Why is it so debilitating? For Joseph, I believe it came from immense, immense peer pressure. Look at John 19, but secretly, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. There's the key right there. The whole of the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership that had that had that it sought to be part of, that stood against this new teacher, Jesus. He was trying to be part of that group, but they had locked themselves firmly against Jesus. So the meetings, the backroom discussions, the coffee hour discussions must have been just littered with opposition to Jesus as the day grew closer and closer. Fear also likely comes from the fact that following Jesus cuts across the tide of conventional wisdom. I wonder, you know, we, we've spent quite a bit of time in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in the last months. I wonder if Joseph of Arimathea was at the mountain that day when Jesus said, and he repeated often in his teaching, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You see, Jesus is contrary to political correctness. This teaching that Jesus brought flew in the face of conventional wisdom. It flew in the face of political correctness of their day. And fear, I think, also probably came in the, in the atmosphere of significant mockery of this new teaching and the rabbi. So that not only was the atmosphere toxic, it had devolved from tox toxic to treacherous. The intimidation in such an environment must have been suffocating for Joseph of Arimathea, to say the least. Can you imagine that? Can you, can you put yourself in that kind of a place today? Everything from reading the headlines to going to the office to going to school, can you imagine the intimidation, the overwhelming antagonism? towards all things God, ramp that up times 10, and that's where Joseph lived. So Joseph is known in Scripture as a secret disciple, one who was afraid of the Jews. So I imagine him standing in the crowd and standing next to his Sanhedrin, Sadducee, and Pharisee colleagues, looking on with disinterest, maybe, maybe standing there like this a little bit, totally disinterested, just there to make sure everything's what it's supposed to be with this Jesus guy. Looking on with disinterest, maybe even trying to keep a look of disdain as his colleagues would have been doing. I think that even if Joseph was listening intently, his body language would communicate otherwise because he wanted to be a secret disciple. The allegiance to his Sanhedrin uniform, I'll say, would never allow for showing himself interested in Jesus or his teaching. So I ask ourselves this morning, 
who among us has not stood in the place of Joseph? I recall in another lifetime, in, in going back, digging deep in, into the memory banks, when I worked on a construction crew, we were installing curb and gutter in a parking lot of a church. Our crew was taking a break. I believe it was raining out that day, and, and uh, we were taking a break inside of our, our supply van, just trying to keep dry. One of the senior men on our crew, a rather crusty guy, one of the senior men on our crew went into a rant about God right there in the church parking lot. I don't remember what his problem was, but I, I, I believe looking back at it, just the proximity to the church was enough to set him off. And the more he ranted, the angrier he got. And in his mind, he was building a solid case against God. And then the moment came when he couldn't help himself. And he stood up in this panel van that we had, and he went to the back door and flung it open. And he said, what do you have to say about that, preacher? Talking to the building. Now, when I think about that story, when I, when I think about Don was his name, I think about the anger that must have been in his heart for God. My mind goes right to the anger. My mind goes right to him being so explosively bitter about God. And that's the focus of the story for me. But there's another focus in that story that I choose not to look at. And that's the young laborer, the young concrete laborer who's sitting in the front of the van and not saying a word. On that day, I was a secret disciple afraid to say something. We've all been in that place. We've all been in that break room. We've all been in that classroom. We've all been in that discussion. When we know that we should take a stand for Christ, but our hearts turn to jello and our willingness runs out the door. Somebody can say amen. Okay, good. Okay, let's, let's, let's leave that. Let's go on to the, to the moment when courage overcomes. Look at, look at Mark chapter 15, Mark's narrative of the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15. So before we get too carried away with judging Joseph and shaming on Joseph because he was a secret disciple, um, I'm guessing that we would have been secret disciples in, the, in that kind of a context as well. A respected member, Mark chapter 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's one thought that stands out to me. And then if you turn to Luke, and we won't do that, but Luke chapter 23, the other thing that stands out to me, this moment of decision, this moment where courage overcomes his fear, 
he took courage, and in Luke 23, he says that he had not consented to their decision or their actions. Now, I'm not sure what that looked like. I, I, I wonder if it was a loud dissent on his part when the Sanhedrin gathered together or when there were small clusters of Pharisees and Sadducees gathered around and they were, they were trashing on Jesus and his ministry and his teaching. What did it mean that he had not consented to their decision or their action? Did he speak up with a voice or did he just stand there like I did in that van that one day? What did it mean that he did not consent, consented to their decision? When the discussion came, when the decision came to, to go after Jesus and to have him arrested and to, and to enter into that treachery, where, where was Joseph? Did he speak up? When the time came to take a vote, did he raise his hand and say, no, I don't think I agree. We need to stop this. I wonder what he did. Or did he dissent without speaking? Did he find his voice or did he keep it to himself? I, I wonder. I don't think we know the answer to that question. The scripture just doesn't tell us. All it says is that he had not consented to their decision, their action. And then it happened. Something broke inside of Joseph. Being a secret disciple was no longer an option for him. We just read it in Mark chapter 15. He took courage. And I asked myself, what does it take? What does it mean that somebody takes courage? What does it mean that, that they, they've made a radical turn in their heart? What does it mean that they've decided now to identify with Jesus no matter what the cost? And just five minutes ago or, or two days ago or whatever the time frame, they were, they were willing, they were satisfied to be secret disciples. A secret disciple. What causes that radical turn in the heart of somebody? So I look at the life of Joseph, and I, and I think about what might have been involved in, the, in his turning from timidity to courage. Let's look at it. Let me, let me offer up some ideas, some observations. The first thing that I think needs to happen is that we, we, we need to see fear as something that needs to be confronted. You see, left unchecked, left uncontested, fear will grow and it will intensify. At some point, we need to recognize fear for what it is. Fear. When we see it and we begin to quantify it, we can accurately count the cost and we can begin to move against it. We can face into it. We see it in Scripture often. When, 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 uh, when the angel came to Mary, what's the first thing that the angel said to Mary? Do not fear. Do not fear. When God spoke to Joshua in, 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 in Joshua chapter 1, and he was giving over the mantle of leadership. Moses had died, and now Moses, Joshua was going to be the leader. Can you imagine filling Joshua's shoes? Or Moses' shoes? There's Joshua. Now he's going to lead the people. What does, what's the message that God gives to Joshua in that moment? Don't be afraid. And the flip side of it? Be... Take courage, take courage, take courage. Be strong. That's, here's what I'm looking for. Be strong and courageous. I don't remember how many times God said it in Joshua chapter 1. I encourage you to read it. But he says it several times to Joshua. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Face the fear. Walk straight into it. Face the fear. Be strong and courageous. 
No one says that we should not fear. Rather that our fear needs to be looked in the eye. Another observation that I'm seeing is that when, when knowledge becomes greater than our fear. You see, I don't know when Joseph started listening to Jesus. I don't know if it goes all the way back to the beginning of his ministry or if he just caught up with him at the last part of his ministry. I don't know where it was. But he absorbed the teaching of Jesus. And there was a moment in the life of Joseph, in the heart of Joseph, when all the teaching of Jesus came together, when it synthesized in his heart. When it, when it gelled together in his heart. The teaching, the kingdom of God that he talked about, maybe the person of Jesus himself overwhelmed the fear of Joseph. At some point, the knowledge came together and it minimized or it even destroyed the fear that Joseph was facing. Seeing fear through the lens of right. James 4.17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's a sin. Somewhere in this process, Joseph was overcome by the sin in this situation. He must have seen the hard hearts of the, the Sanhedrin members. He saw the wicked agendas uh, that, were, that, were, that, were, that were surfacing in this discussion. And then he saw the violent measures that were being taken against Jesus. And it was wrong. Jesus was innocent, and that seemed very apparent to Joseph. In fact, if you look at the story, if you read the narrative, everyone saw that Jesus was innocent. It didn't seem to matter. And yet there he was, hanging on the tree like a common criminal. Joseph saw that Jesus was innocent. And here's, one, here's the fun fact. One of the reasons we know that Joseph knew that Jesus was innocent is that he laid him in his tomb. You know why? Because the law says, the tradition says, the Jewish tradition says, if you lay a criminal in a tomb, it defiles the tomb, and it defiles all the dead, the deceased around it. So you would never, ever, ever lay the, the body of a criminal in your grave. So the fact that he laid Jesus in his tomb says that he understood that Jesus was innocent. You see, finding courage means seeing the right as greater than your fear. And then you need to see the outcome as greater than the fear. The Gospels tell us that Joseph had a passion for the kingdom of God. He longed to see the kingdom of God established. At some point in his heart, in his thought process, in, his, in, in processing all that he was, he was seeing in Jesus, he must have realized that his loyalties, that his motives, and indeed his whole life was given over to something that was a dead end. He must have... He must have taken a survey of his whole life and everything that motivated him and said, you know what, in light of the teaching of Jesus, in light of a relationship with this Jesus who says he's the Messiah, I realize that everything that I've based my life on is the wrong direction. The ladder's up against the wrong wall, as they say. 
And I believe that the reason the gospel writers say that he had a passion, that he had a longing for the kingdom of God is because he saw the outcome is greater than the fear. That was able to overcome his fear. The vision and the teaching of Jesus concerning the life and the kingdom of God had become his hope, had become his passion, had become his faith, and he couldn't take it anymore. I've got one more observation. I think he saw the glory of the Lord as greater than his fear. This week, um, Sandy and I watched the movie Risen. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a story of, story of the crucifixion and the resurrection through the eyes of the centurion. And it's, I, I commend it to you. It's a, it's a good, good, uh, good movie. One of the scenes that caught my attention showed the crosses, of course, showed the cross of Christ and the two thieves. But behind, behind the crosses was a pit. And in that pit were bodies of those who had been crucified. And it was awful. All the bodies were in various states of decay, showed the, the soldiers doing this with the flies, and the smell was, was overwhelming. They all walked around with kerchiefs over their nose and mouth. But apparently that was common practice for crucifixions. You see, if Joseph, Joseph had not asked for the body of Jesus, that might have been the fate of Jesus. And I believe something inside of Joseph snapped. He had been quiet for so many things, but seeing the desecration of the body was a line too far. It was too much. For Joseph, somewhere in his journey, a line was crossed that denigrated the glory of God. I've thought about what that line might be for each of us. Listen, listen to some of these ideas. Where is the line for you? Let me ask you that question. Where is the line? Is it when good becomes evil? Is it when evil becomes good? Is it when the holy becomes profane? Is it when life becomes death? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of the dancing and celebration in the New York chambers when they passed the, the law. And all the surveys said immediately after that, that announcement and the, and the joy that people took of after birth abortion. What did the surveys do? Even those who are pro-choice in that discussion said that's a line too far. And that's why I put life becomes death. What's the line for you? Is the line when the image of God is devalued? Is the line when truth becomes a lie or, or lie becomes a truth? Is it when beauty turns to depravity? Or is it when praise is turned to mockery? And I ask us this morning, where is the line for us? My thoughts turn to people like Richard Wormbrand. We watched the movie of his life a few weeks ago here at Valley and the testimony of his life. He's the Romanian pastor who stood for Christ in communist Romania. The time came, we, we watched the movie, and the time came for him to declare his allegiance to the Communist Party early in the days of communism. 
And instead, you remember the line? He said, said to his wife, Sabrina, you know I need to stand for Christ when I get up there. And what did she say? I don't want a coward for a husband. And so he stood up in the pulpit, the, 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 the yeah, Ambon is the word in Romanian. I'm getting all confused now. Stood up in front of all those people, all those officials of the Communist Party, all the church leaders gathered together to declare their allegiance to the Communist Party, and he said, shame on you for not declaring your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, in front of all those people, in front of all that antagonism, he declared the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. A line had been crossed for Richard Wormbrandt. Scripture describes many testimonies of courage. I think of Moses standing before Pharaoh. I think of Noah building an ark in the midst of just utter mockery. I think of David defying Goliath in the name of the Lord. How dare you? How dare you? The glory of the Lord was at stake for David. The disciples came out of hiding and they boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. Even in the temple. Dave and Cindy Just are going to give us a report in the next weeks on their recent trip to Africa and giving the motorcycles away to pastors. And I look at the, the pictures. I think this is an old picture. Dave is here someplace. Where's Dave? They're right there. This is an older picture. This isn't last. This isn't okay. You see how many motorcycles there are lined up there? How many are we up to now, Dave? 240 or something like that motorcycles given away. And I want, you to, I want you to catch this this morning. For every one of those motorcycles, there's a pastor or a full-time ministry worker standing behind it who needs that motorcycle to do the work of their ministry in Africa. And the gospel's going all across Africa because of those motorcycles. But I want you to note this. Every one of those pastors has a story like Joseph of Arimathea. Every one of those pastors has a moment when they, had, when they said to themselves, they woke up one morning and they said, I have got to declare for Jesus today. And every one of those motorcycles represents a story like that. For every one of those, uh, the examples that I've given, a moment in time came when the safety of silence was overcome by the knowledge of Christ in the gospel. Timidity becomes courage in the light of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with all this? For me, the testimony of Joseph humbles me. And I believe his testimony, his story, humbles us. He was willing to step out of the shadows in a highly toxic and antagonistic situation to boldly declare his allegiance to Christ. To boldly declare his understanding of the kingdom of God. His testimony is humbling. Now look at his testimony, and I realize one of, there's probably lots of observations we could make, but I realize that, that our voice, when we share Jesus Christ, does not have to be loud. You see, I think one of the things that, that comes in a conversation like this is, well, okay, you expect me to stand up in the marketplace. You expect me to stand up on the, on the, on the table in the break room and, and begin to preach, or you want me to go out on the corner and preach. And I'm not saying that God's not calling you to that. So don't, don't let me let you off the hook for that. Or me. 
But I'm encouraged that Joseph's testimony is such that it didn't have to be loud. It didn't have to be intrusive. All he had to do, all he had to do, right? All he had to do was walk up to Pilate and say, can I have the body of Jesus? <laughs> all he had to do was walk up to Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the foot of the cross with all of the Pharisees and Sadducees looking on and begin to minister to them and weep with them. All he had to do was, was help in taking the body of Jesus down. And they, they, it says that they moved him over to a rock and they began to wash his body. And he did it all in full view of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I imagine many of them began to run immediately back to the city to tell on what, what Joseph was doing. You see, you don't, have to, you don't have to be loud, but you have to be intentional. And you have to step into situations where it might be uncomfortable to declare the name of Jesus. This scripture doesn't record it, but I'm guessing there was a time when Joseph had to go back to the gathering of the Sanhedrin. I'm guessing there was a time when they called a meeting and they said, Joseph, we'd like you to be at this meeting. And he had to defend himself. And I'm guessing that his testimony was very costly. I think the Holy Spirit is calling us today through the story of Joseph of Arimathea. As he called Joseph, I believe he's calling us. I think he's calling us to abandon our hope in the world. He's calling us to abandon the things that we cling so tightly to that are temporal. Whatever those things are that cause us to have fear of losing, he's calling us to abandon those things. He's calling us to publicly acknowledge Jesus. Calling us to publicly acknowledge our hope in him to the world around us. And he's calling us to take action out of our faith. He's calling us to stand on the hope and the assurance of the gospel and to take action. To come out of the shadows and identify with Jesus. I... I am I'm very much conscious of this being a, a shame and guilt message. Well, you better. You should. I think we need to learn from Joseph of Arimathea. And so I asked the question this morning, does, does your neighbor know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? I said I didn't want to do shame and guilt, but there it is. I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask it anyway. Does your neighbor know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? How about the people in your office or your workplace? Most of our students are up at District Blitz this Sunday, so it'd be a great time to ask them about their classroom, but they're all gone. So. But I know that the classroom is a very intimidating and even a toxic place at times. Okay, I'm going to get really personal. How many of you have not been baptized because you're afraid to give your testimony? How many of you 
when asked to give your testimony, say, I'm afraid to speak in front of people. Lee? Lee, you're the only one in the room that can honestly say that this morning. Now listen, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to fill a slate for appointments for testimonies during church. I, I am trying to do that. But I believe Joseph of Arimathea is calling to us through the Holy Spirit this morning and saying it's time for us to go public with our, our testimony. And if you're not getting baptized because you don't want to give your testimony, then I think we're, we're not understanding what baptism is. It's a public testimony. I have decided to follow Jesus. Okay. I said I don't want this to be a shame message. So if it's not a shame message, then what is it? You see, I... I oh, good, thank you. Thank you. Okay, you're, okay, you're helping me out here. Did, when, when, did, you, did you hear in Lee's testimony this morning? Did you hear Lee's testimony? And she said, she said, we're starting Celebrate Recovery, and I know what God has done for me in this. And what did she say after that? I want that for you. You see, it's not a shame and blame and a guilt message. It's a, I want you to have all that God wants for you message. And I believe whether it's, whether it's baptism or sharing our faith or, or whatever it is that God's calling you to obedience in, I believe that on the other side of that step of obedience, God's going to show himself in ways that you never even imagined before. And I want that for you. And if you don't think I struggle with this, I don't struggle with this, and you're wrong. You're, you're probably thinking, well, okay, you stand up there and talk in front of people all, every Sunday. What's, I could never do that. God's not asking you to do that. I'm going to say something. This... This is a friendly crowd. It's easy for me to stand up here and tell you about Jesus. But I think about those who are on, on, on the radio, those who are on television, those who are, who are boldly standing up in the marketplace and going into university classrooms and they're, and, they're, and they're bringing the word of God and they're standing for truths in the marketplace. I don't know that I could do that. You see, we all have our line. We all have our place where God is calling us, and he might be calling us over that line. And I face those same decisions that you do. The context may be different for every one of us, but we all face that decision that Joseph of Arimathea faced. And I ask you this morning, I'm going to ask you three questions. Where's your hope? Does your hope overcome your fear? That's one question. I want to ask you this morning, where is your line? Where is your line where you'll say enough is enough and I'm going to stand for Jesus? And where is your voice? Where do you need to speak up for Christ? Where do you need to share your testimony? Where do you need to say, I follow Jesus? Lord Jesus, you are the giver of life. You are the one who has given us your word and your truth. You've also, and we praise you for this, given us your Holy Spirit to prompt us, to lead us into the places that we, we, we fear to go. 
we're, we're, we're admitting to you this morning, Lord Jesus, that fear often drives our decisions. And we're asking, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us to face that fear? Would you help us, as, as Joseph of Arimathea did, to boldly step across the line of fear and into the power of your Holy Spirit? And Lord, as we do that, as we invite people to church, as we, as we invite people into our homes to, to just join in fellowship and to seek an opportunity to, to talk about you, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that we would see you at work in ways that we've never seen you before. And Lord Jesus, I pray that it would result in people coming to know you. Even the Joseph of Arimathea's in our life who are standing in the background with their arms crossed, seemingly unopened, to your word, Lord, we know that you can break through the hardest of hearts. And we're praying that you'd use us to do that. We pray with confidence because you have risen from the dead and all things are possible to you. We pray in confidence in the name of Jesus.